Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. I want you to look in verse 24. Now we look at Matthew 24, the Lord giving His statement to His disciples. They've come to Him privately. This is not a public address. The previous passages were public address, but this is a private address. Uh, the crowd has departed. He's left the temple. The disciples come to Him. They show Him the temple. And uh, they begin to ask Him, because um, He makes a comment about not one stone standing. And they say, Lord, tell us what will be the end of the world. That coming and the end of the world. It's important to note that these disciples knew nothing of the New Testament church era, which you and I know. Sadly, today, we often know so very little of the Old Testament time frames. Uh, I think that's a tremendous challenge that we should look at in our life is to be aware that those Old Testament books, those 39 books of the Old Testament, are still the inspired, preserved Word of God. and They bear truths. Yet so many times, believers of today only know the Old Testament by the Proverbs being wisdom and the Psalms being encouragement, and all the rest is somewhat historical. And as with most times, historical means it doesn't really matter to me because I don't live in the past. But really, so much of it is prophetical, and it's God's outpouring. Well, the only thing these disciples knew were those 39 books of the Bible. There's no mention of the New Testament church anywhere to be found in the Old Testament. You have no mention of the rapture. None of that's present, but you'd have a mention of a man of sin or prince that shall come. You'd have a mention of the day of the Lord. You do have a mention of some things, and so their eschatological theory was great different than where we're at today because new things were revealed, mysteries were exposed. But notice what he tells his disciples. Notice in Matthew chapter 24 he's mentioning, correlates well through down to verse 10 with the first five judgments. And then you come to verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You know, a lot of times people begin to wonder about, will there be anybody saved in the tribulational period? Now, hint, hint. If you are saved right now, it has no bearing to you. You are not going to be here. Me and you are going to check out. I'm going to leave evidence that I used to be here. But there will be no habeas corpus. You'll not find the body. For it will be changed in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. But to his disciples, he's poured out all these first five seal judgments. And then he's told them, the gospel has to be preached. And you'll notice that precedes verse 15, where he's talking about what we have identified as the midway part of the tribulation, the abomination make it desolate. So before the midway point, the gospel has to be preached where? What's it say? All nations. Before all the world. So I want you to understand this, that the Lord has raptured out His saints. That does not mean the end of the gospel message. So who are going to be these preachers that will preach the gospel? It's not the apostles. They've long been dead. It's not me and you. Why? We're not here. So some, and I don't think this is inaccurate to all details, will think that the preaching of the gospel is passive. Well, what do you mean by that passive? 
meaning um, they'll find a gospel track. It's passive. They'll find a website. I've told you before, I don't remember this. Wish I had to say there's, a, there's a, some folks that they've got together and established a website and it's on its own private servers and they've got its own generators and stuff there. And the idea is that if the rapture was to happen in a moment that it's still preaching the gospel, you can go to this website and it's still got the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's passive. But that's not kind of the indication that verse 14 gives. The indication verse 14 gives is it's confrontational. Notice, the gospel of the kingdom shall be what? Preached. Preaching has the idea, every form of the word preaching has the idea of confrontational. There are three broad essences of the word preach in the New Testament. There's 14 or 16 in totality. But of the three, they're all confrontation. One of them is keruzo, and that means to herald. That means to herald. So that's the idea of a guy that stands at the corner and begins to ring the bell. I was in a store the other week, and as I walked out, I got a little startled because somebody was ringing a bell and yelling. It was a Salvation Army person, you know. In a sense, you would say they're keruzo, they're proclaiming. And so proclamation is preaching. But not all preaching is proclamation. You also have teaching. And that's the idea of Matthew 28. Didaskalos is the idea. You can get the one that teaches the Word of God. And there's a tremendous amount. That's what Paul did in his evangelistic methods to the Jew and the Gentile. He taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an exchange, a communication, but it's still confrontational. And then you have a third word that is used, and the third word is used only one time, and it's contending. It's the idea of contending. It's one that has an answer to the questions you're asking. More than teaching, it's confronting. But anytime the Bible speaks of preaching the gospel, it's not exclusively talking about the passivity of it. Not that there's anything wrong with gospel uh, tracts or literature. No, we're all for that. But that does not do a suitable replacement for the opportunities that God opened to talk to someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, the gospel is going to be preached. Well, who's going to do it? I'm going to promise you right now, based on their statement of faith, it's none of the missionaries we currently support. They're not doing it. Why? You can say it. I know you want to say it. They ain't going to be here. So who's doing it? That's an important question, and chapter 7 answers this. In fact, I want you to look really in chapter 6 and verse 16 and 17. At the end of this sixth seal, you've got cosmic disturbances that exist. And you get six or seven things here, I guess six things that are here. When the sixth seal is open, you've got an earthquake, great mega earthquake. It is shaking the world to its very core. It's the very definition of Rock and roll. <laughs> there's a mega earthquake that exists. So there's not a place on the face of the earth that does not feel the seismic tremors of the earth. The entire world is tremoring. That's your concept. There would be, in my estimation, only one other time that you would have this. In the history of our universe uh, preceding the Revelation 6 prophecy. And that would be in the times of Noah when the scripture says the fountains of the deep were broken up. You've got a disturbance on the earth that is extensively 
magna, uh, 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 multiplied. Uh, then you have here in verse number 12, now the earthquake, you've got the sun becoming as black, becoming black as sackcloth of hair. Uh, sackcloth, they made the tents of Kadar were black as sackcloth. It's just a, a, a dusty, uh, uh, darkened, gray, black type. The sun's not illuminating its rays. You got the lesser light, the moon. The sun and moon are never referred to as stars. It says it become as blood, as blood. It's got a hue upon it. Then he goes on and he talks about stars of heaven fail, aster. The word star, it's not the sun, it's not the moon. And as you go back, if you wanted to re-listen to, to last week's message, the idea is it is some type of, of uh, whether you want to call it a meteor or a comet or what you might call it, it's pelting the earth. It's pelting the earth. Uh, and you say, well, how do you know it's pelting the earth? Because of the next part of the verse where it talks about a fig tree casting her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Untimely figs are figs that developed on the branches of a fig tree but do not have the opportunity to ripen due to the, the changing of weather. And so when a wind comes, they all let loose and begin to drop. And what do they do? Pelt the ground. I don't think that this is like Alpha Centauri stars that are in distant galaxies that are nebulous in their makeup. They wouldn't pelt the earth, they would consume the earth. It's the idea of why I think the better sense means something that we might use a star like a comet a shooting star, a meteor, an asteroid, or something of that nature. But nevertheless, something is pelting the earth with great force. He goes on to verse 14, the heavens departed from the, uh, uh, as uh, scrolls. Uh, next in verse 14, every mountain and island were moved out of their place. This is a massive cosmic disturbance. That phrase, the heavens open like a scroll, I, uh, that's a very difficult thing to contrive, but some have suggested it's the movement of the earth that causes their perspective of the earth to move. I liken it rather to the idea that mankind can now on earth see into the portals the glory of the Almighty God. He goes on in the verses, and the reason I kind of think that is you now have seven different groups of humanity, from kings to bondmen and freemen, and they hide themselves in dens and rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. They know from whence this judgment comes, and from the wrath of the Lamb. And verse 17 is an important verse. For the great day of his wrath is come, and it ends how? Who's going to be able to stand? It's a powerful calamity for sure in Psalm 2. He shall laugh, he shall have them in derision, he shall vex them. They're seeing all the vexing of the great omnipotent God and they're hiding themselves from the fierceness of his wrath. They're saying, who's going to be able to stand? And John says, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the trees. There's a great uh, calmness instead of calamity that he sees. They're not blowing on the sea, nor on any tree. Someone said about the four corners of the earth. You can think of that by the word news. N-E-W-S, north, east, west, south. It says, I saw another angel descending from the east, having the seal of the living God. You've just heard about six seals. 
And now there's an angel with a seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it is given to hurt the earth and sea. And he tells these angels, and when I think of these angels that are hurting the earth and the sea, that goes back to the earlier seal judgments. And he tells them, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And thus in verse 4 he said, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now when you get to chapter 9, or rather verse 9 and following, he says, After this I beheld. So it's the conclusion of one vision, the opening of a new one. And from verse 9 all the way to verse number 17, the perspective is different. And I would submit to you that there are two different visions here. So you get here the introduction, almost something that is parenthetical, like a pause. The six judgments ended, the question, who shall stand? And it's almost as though the Lord is answering, who shall stand? And it's a parenthesis. It's a time which will go back preceding the first judgments, of these 144,000 individuals, who as we'll see this morning, are given a direct mandate and a direct purpose to do one thing. They are not church planners. Why? Ain't no church. They're not preaching the epistles of the church. The church age is right now. That's why when you go to the book of Acts, all the way forward, it's incompatible to have individuals, it's incompatible with scriptures to have an individual that's saved and not be baptized and a saved person that's, not, uh, that's baptized that's not part of a local assembly. It's incompatible. You don't find that in scriptures. All of the believers are coming into a body of localized believers in their area for the purpose of worshiping God and fulfilling the commandments of God. That's that era. These individuals are not preaching anything about the office of a pastor, about the office of a deacon. They're not talking about Sunday school programs <clears throat> and youth meetings. They're not talking about choirs. They certainly ain't talking about cantatas. Amen. <laughs> you know what you're talking about? Joel put it this way in chapter 2. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decisions. It's in this time that they're doing one thing. They're preaching the gospel of the Lamb. And they'll preach from my estimation, beginning of the first seal all the way until the totality of all the tribulation is done. For seven years, that's the length of their ministry. Predetermined, isn't it? Only seven years. They'll preach boldly, fervently, inexhaustibly the gospel of the Lamb. And all the while, the false beast and the demonic forces of hell will preach their gospel. And these two will be opposed one to another. Friend, there'll be no JWs. There'll be no Mormons. There'll be no Davidian branch people. There'll be two sides to this coin. The spirit of the Antichrist that now works will continue in the full embodiment of the Antichrist and you'll have the gospel of the Lamb. 
you'll have 144,000 witnesses that will preach that gospel into every remote corner of inhabited earth. On their side will be the Lamb of the Most High, He upon whom the skies rolled apart like a scroll, and every eye could behold His glory. He to whom would cause earthquakes, He to whom would set out individuals with dominions, I think of that first seal judgment. He that will cause famine to strike upon the earth insomuch that the temperament of animals will be changed. But all the while, these preachers will go forth. That in mind, let's take a moment and look at our notes. The sealed servants. As the sealed judgments conclude, especially the sixth seal, they have revealed the wrath the wrath of God, or rather the wrath of the Lamb. It has affected every category of humanity, from the kings of the earth to the bondmen. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, the free man. As they hide from him that sitteth upon the throne, they ask a thought-provoking question. The question is this, who shall be able to stand. Now some may think this rhetorical, but God has directed John to see his answer to this perplexing question. Pausing from the chronological sequence, and by the way, he not only pauses here in chapter 7, but he'll pause later after the trumpet judgments. After the sixth trumpet judgment, you'll see another pause that will exist. But here in this matter, he pauses from the chronological sequence of his visions of divine judgment, and John witnesses two major groups in this tribulational period. Our focus shall be on the first of those this morning, the sealed servants of God. These sealed servants are a ray of light that is transmitted against the dark backdrop of gloom and judgment. It's our view that these servants are in existence prior at least to the fifth judgment, and most likely even prior to the first judgment seal or seal judgment. Sometimes people consider, well, how did these 144,000 come to the saving knowledge of the gospel of the Lamb? And I would submit to you that they very likely may have come from the gospel of Christ through the ministry of the two witnesses, which we will read about in Revelation chapter 11, who prophesy uh, in and around Jerusalem for a space of 1260 days and then are killed violently and their bodies left for three and a half days. Every man sees them and they get up, shake themselves off, and I don't know a better word than this, and are raptured into the presence of God. In any case, let me give you this morning seven observations about these sealed servants. Number one, as we just read in Revelation chapter 7 verse 2, they have a divine seal. A divine seal. This is interesting because you and I as believers also have a divine seal. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God within us by which we are sealed, the scripture says, unto the day of redemption. But their seal will be different than what you and I consider. These servants have a divinely placed seal 
upon their foreheads. You'll note that in verse number 3, in the last phrase. They're sealed servants of God in their foreheads. The seal is quite likely the name of God. You would ask why, and you could read in Revelation chapter 14. Time will not allow us this morning, but he talks about their seal being the name of God. The seal will be replicated by Satan. You'll find that after the midway of the tribulation in chapter 13 and verse 16, uh, that the Antichrist and his minion and the false beast will demand a seal to be had. Uh, his number of, uh, of 600, three score and six, and that is, we refer to it as the mark of the beast. By the way, that occurs halfway through the tribulation. It does not occur in the first half. You have these 144,000 running around to the four corners of the earth with a seal in their head and it would be counterfeited at the three and a half year mark. In ancient time, a seal was set on the forehead of servants. It was marked so that it was not mistakable. And yet at the same time, a seal was set on the hand of a soldier who was not a forever servant in many cases. So an observation we get is they have a divine seal. Number two, they have a distinct sum, a distinct sum. In verse 7, it speaks of there being 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And some would argue that their sum is symbolic of all saints. It's interesting, you'll read that in a number of commentaries, uh, specifically those that uh, do not believe in the rapture. And they'll talk about it really not being 12,000 or 12 tribes, it's symbolic. It's just a complete number. Well, they have to. You know, there's no Old Testament prophecy of these 144,000 that ever exist at all. And many that would engage in replacement theology have said now that the church has replaced Israel. And you'll hear individuals say, and some even well-meaning, that no Jew today could know of what tribe he comes from at all. There's just no way of knowing that whatsoever. Of course, it's not the truth of the matter. I listened to a Jew once saying this. His last name was Cohen. And he said uh, many times their, their last names is indicative of the tribes he came from. Cohen is an anglicized root of the word Kohath, one of the singing sons of Aaron. So they do have an essence of the tribe. If there is going to be the rebuilding of the temple, which there most certainly has to be, you can't have a temple if you do not know who the Levites are. Cannot exist. In which case, this divine son, some, does not represent some symbol, symbolism, but rather they have great specificity. For numbers in the book of Revelation are constantly used. We talk about one seal judgments and two seal judgments and seven seal judgments. We speak of one angel in four corners of the earth. We speak about various of sums here. We speak about four beasts. Every child of God likes the literality of Revelation chapter 21 where it describes the city four square. So I would submit to you when you get to chapter 7 and God said 12,000, he didn't mean 11,000 and he certainly didn't mean an indefinite number. He specifically meant, he knew, John knew what 12,000 was. When God in the book of Revelation wants to use a symbolistic number, he does so. He does so in chapter 5 when he says 10,000 times 10,000. That's symbolism. 
that's a mark. And the text completely says that. It's a number that need not be counted. The Greek word for 10,000 there is myriad. It's not a number, it's an expression. But here when you get to 12,000, the number is 12,000. He means it with specificity. By the way, this number of 144,000 is later restated in chapter 14 and verse 3. A third observation that I will give you about these 144,000 shield servants is they have a demographic similarity. A demographic similarity. Now, if we were to take the time and uh, read from verses 4 through 8, you'll find a listing of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephilim, Manasseh, Simon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And you'll have 12 tribes times 12,000 is 144,000. So by this, each of these servants are from the house of Israel. In fact, they are from each tribe. Now, two tribes, as we read just a moment ago, were not mentioned. These two tribes are Ephraim and Dan. Ephraim seemingly seems to be substituted by Joseph. You'll keep in mind that Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they were large and extensive in their populace. Um, and there is context, I believe it's over in Corinthians, that at one time they're sometimes referred to as the tribe of Joseph, the tribes of Joseph, meaning Ephraim and Manasseh. So it could be that Ephraim is substituted divinely here by the name Joseph. It wouldn't be out of the context of Scripture. But Dan is seemingly substituted by the tribe of Levi in chapter 7 and verse 7. And there's no reason given in the context of the Scripture for this substitution. In fact, in the other counting of the twelve tribes of Israel, most times Levi is not mentioned. The reason why was the biblical command that every child, every firstborn son that openeth the matrix is the word. The idea is your firstborn son belonged to God. And so as of that, in God's keeping... He was going to be working at the tabernacle, at the temple. He was God's. However, God said instead of that, He was going to require a tax upon your firstborn son. A specific tax. And, of course, a tax upon every child that was born to you. But the tribe of Levi was going to be redeemed as a whole unto him. And so when they entered the land, the tribe of Levi does not get an amalgamation of land. They get no division. They divided the land up by 12 tribes, and Levi doesn't get a tribe. Rather, it's said of Levi, I am Levi's portion. And it was quite interesting when you would bring your peace offering to the Lord. That was not a burnt offering. It wasn't an atonement offering. But that was those voluntary gifts and offerings. They went to the tribe of Levi and divvied up among them. And the tribes of Levi had inhabited cities among several tribes in which they lived, but they were given no physical portion. So here, in this keeping, one that was given land, Dan, is substituted by, it seems, Levi. No reason is given. Uh, some have postulated that both Dan, <clears throat> especially Dan, and Ephraim uh, had a remarkable connection to the idolatry of Israel. Deuteronomy mentions this in chapter 29. Uh, some would say that Dan... Uh, was first in all of this idolatry, and that's why God removed their presence here 
in Revelation chapter 7. Now, it should be noted that when the millennial age commences, uh, you find about this in Ezekiel chapter 48, the first tribe to get their portion of land is none other than Dan. So you've got 144,000, none of them are for Dan for seven years. When the millennial kingdom happens, Dan's the first batter up. Dan is the first one that gets her land, according to Ezekiel chapter 48. So it is not that there's a total eradication of them. At some point, they're redeemed, and there's a tribe named Dan of literal Jewish people that go in and inhabit the land that God has in the millennial kingdom for them. Ephraim is fifth on the list to receive her land. A second thing that is often given is mentioned here. The tribe of Dan is pictured as both a lion, technically a lion's whelp, in, um, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 22, and as a serpent in Genesis chapter 49 and 17. The only other entity that is pictured as such is Satan, who is a roaring lion and a serpent. Due to this, some believe that the Antichrist will come through the line of Dan. And they get that from Daniel chapter 11 and then the coupling with these passages I gave you. Hence, therefore, since the, and their speculation, since the Antichrist and their theory comes from the line of Dan, Dan would be following their world leader. Hence the omission in this list. And I want to end that with this sentence here. Both of these theories are what? Don't get wrapped up over it. You say, preacher, is that what you believe? I don't know. I was listening one day to Messianic Jew. He said, man, if the Antichrist is Jew, one thing I'll say about that. And my ears perked up. And he goes, it'd be the first Jew the world ever loved. And I looked at that and I said, there's something to that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just giving you the theories on why it's admitted. No reason is given in the context of scriptures. Number four, a fourth observation is they have a determined service. These servants are linked with a great multitude in chapter, nine, uh, chapter 7 and verse 9 that exists during the tribulational period. These determined saints will seem to preach the gospel of the Lamb during the entirety of the tribulation. Many during that time will hear the message and come to saving faith. And of those tribulational saints that hear the message of the gospel and come to, uh, come to uh, saving faith, many of those will be martyred. And you can read about that in chapter 6 and verse 11. You can read about that in chapter 7 and verse 16. And you can read about that in chapter 20 and verse 4. Many, if not most, of the tribulational saints will be executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what about these 144,000? I'm going to submit to something to you. It's my belief that the 144,000 will be untouchable. Hence, number five, they seem to have a defended survival. They seem to have a, a defended survival. They're not one of the martyrs. They're converts, as we might would say, are martyrs. The duration of the servant's ministry seems to be the entire length of the 70th week of Daniel. During such time, they, these 144,000, will be on earth when the wrath of God is set loose. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. Yet, at least some of the judgments will have no effect at all upon this 144,000. You're here in chapter 7. Let me read to you about the fifth angel sounding. He sounds his trumpet and the fifth trumpet seal comes. I want you to listen to this. And there came out of the smoke that ascends from the pit. 
locusts upon the earth. And upon them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They have some sting uh, that is going to render misery to the inhabitants of the earth. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither the green thing nor any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their what? Who has the seal of God in their foreheads? 144,000. That's it. The tribulational group does not have that seal of God in their forehead. There's nowhere mentioned they have the seal of God in their forehead, but these 144,000 are. So at least by this we can say at least one judgment, they're untouchable. As these demonic type locusts are stinging everybody, if they come up to this one sealed, one of these sealed preachers, they got to pass over him. They cannot touch him. He has a divine protection. Equally, their loyalty to Christ the Lamb will cause them to be pursued. Don't think for a moment they're not hated. Don't think for a moment that the history of humanity, the wisdom says if we can cut off the head, you know, it won't replicate itself again. Don't think for a moment that, that they're just ignored. They'll be hunted, but they'll never be caught. They'll have to endure the famine and pestilences that exist, but God will sustain them. I would I had time to speak to length on this, but their ministry seems to be sustained like Elijah's was in the Old Testament by the power of God. You remember when the rain of dearth came for those three and a half years? What happened to Elijah? What happened to him? God fed him. I wonder what brook dried up. God found a widow in the devil's most wicked city, Jezebel's hometown, in fact, to feed him. God protected them. By the way, I would say that when armies were sent up against Elijah, armies, what would happen? Called down fire from heaven upon them. And so much that they finally came crawling, asking him not to. This is Elijah. When Elijah was in the caves of the mountain, God sent an angel to feed him. I would liken that there's something to occur in this manner as well. Number six, they have a dedication to the Savior. I must hurry. Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, their loyalty to Christ will be impeccable. They will not receive the mark of the beast, but will have a new song. And Revelation 14 says that this is their song and theirs alone to sing. Number seven, they have a devout sanctification. In Revelation chapter 14, another place in which they're mentioned, and by the way, chapter 14 is after the abomination of desolation. You've met, you're well beyond three and a half years into their ministry. In Revelation chapter 14, these 144,000 saints or servants, sealed servants, the scripture says, these are they which are not defiled with women for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were the redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. They have a devout sanctification. These 144,000 servants will be virgin males. Ergo, they will be without wife or child. They will have as a primary purpose the proclamation of the gospel of the Lamb. As the scripture indicated, they are the first fruits of the great promised harvest of Israel that shall come. Zechariah chapter 12 mentions this, so does Revelation chapter 11. It talks about Israel being saved. 
And to our closing thoughts, perhaps these sealed servants will be sent two by two, like the 70 disciples were sent in Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. Perhaps God will direct them to the presence of men that are diligently seeking, like Philip was sent to the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, God directed him into the desert and there he met the eunuch. And when he finishes the communication of the eunuch, you know what the scripture says? He was not. God did some marvelous thing with Philip that he goes, he travels down and he meets the eunuch. And when that message is finished, God, I don't, transports him. And he was found in another area and began to preach in all those cities. He's moved beyond the scope of the time-space continuum that you and I travel in. He didn't walk away. God moved him and he was not. He didn't take him to heaven. He just moved him to a different locale. And perhaps that will be how these 144,000 will minister. We think today of going into all the world. We think of going door by door. Perhaps they are divinely moved by the Spirit of God. They know what door to knock upon. Do you get my point? And when they have finished knocking here, God has moved them over here. Regardless, they will faithfully preach the gospel to the four corners of the world before the Lamb returns in His glory. Matthew 24 and verse 14. Despite the Antichrist, despite the false prophet, and the masses that refuse the truth, these servants preach the gospel. Their testimony should exhort us to stand for truth and to preach the gospel even in the perilous times in which we live. The sealed servants of God. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.